This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. I'm the king of the world! There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here all by myself right now because I'm here to share with you two special interviews we have to share this 4th of July week. First, we're going to hear from Richard Lawson, who talked to Jack Rayner, who is one of the stars of Ari Aster's upcoming horror movie, Midsommar, which is his follow-up to Hereditary. Uh, Jack plays a guy who he kind of describes himself as the prick boyfriend to the main character played by Florence Pugh. But he brings some interesting things to the role, uh, no less because he is a really huge film buff. It's, it's not really a secret Instagram, but he does have an entire Instagram dedicated to all of these old films that he's watching and sharing with people. I'd say that of all of the people we've ever had on the show, he might know more about movies, and that definitely includes all of us. Uh, you might recognize Jack from some Hollywood movies like Transformers Age of Extinction. He was in My Beloved Sing Street. He's an Irish actor who's carved out a really interesting career for himself, and uh, from the way he talks, might have a really interesting career as a filmmaker ahead of him. And then after that, we'll share an interview that I did with Lynn Shelton, who is the writer and director of the new film Sword of Trust. Although with Lynn's movies, writer is a little bit of a misnomer. Uh, A lot of her films, including this one, are really heavily improvised. And she did this one with Mark Maron, Jillian Bell, Michaela Watkins, and other people who are really comfortable with improvisation. So they have kind of a story of where it's going to go. The the film is a really kind of silly, but uh, a little bit resonant caper about people in Alabama who are trying to sell a sword that is supposedly a clue that the South won the Civil War. And Lynn talks about returning to improvisation after a long period of working in television and making some films that were a little more heavily scripted. And we talked a lot about her work in television. She's going to be directing four of the upcoming episodes of Hulu's adaptation of Little Fires Everywhere. She's worked on shows like Mad Men and New Girl and Glow and now Little Fires Everywhere and has had a really interesting career from someone who started off being described as mumblecore, which is another term we talk about and uh, has really grown as a filmmaker since then. So we'll listen to both of those interviews and uh, we'll be back next week with a brand new episode. In the meantime, enjoy them. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire. But when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. 
Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Well, I have the pleasure of sitting across the table right now from Jack Rayner, one of the stars of Midsummer. Jack, thank you for being here. Great to be here. Thank you. I was telling you before we recorded that I was at this sort of press premiere screening at the mm. at the Alamo Draft House in Brooklyn of the film, and the sentiment from you and your co-star Florence Pugh and, and Ari Aster, the writer and director, to some extent, before the movie was, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. There should be a disclaimer with do, this movie. Do you feel any hesitancy about recommending it? I mean, like, are, are there certain people in your life who would be like, uh, no, don't see it, even if you're a fan of mine? E, well, I, I think kind of my family, I'm like, Jesus, I don't want my family to see what happens to me in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot happens. A yeah, lot yeah. happens. Um, um, I should warn listeners that we probably will get into some mild spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie yet, uh, just uh, hit pause and go see it and then come back and listen. So the project, can you talk a little bit about how it came to you? Um, was it a traditional someone sent you the script and you said, okay, this seems interesting, or was there... Yeah, um, it was my agent, James, he sent me on the material, which at the time, Ari's film Hereditary hadn't come out yet. So I got a package which had Ari's shorts... And it also had the script for Midsommar. And I watched the short films and instantly felt this guy has a really unique style and vision and tone. And his films also seem to... They exist in a way where they're really funny. There's a lot of humor, a lot of very dark black kind of humor um, and there's very serious undertones you know and it's dealing with very heavy themes you know like grief for instance obviously you know it's no laughing matter but somehow he manages to find the comedy in this stuff and then I read the script and I just felt like whoa like how is this how are you going to go about executing this film in the 21st century, you know? This is something that, like, maybe you could have got away with making this in the 70s, but I just was like, this is such a monumental undertaking to try and execute this film the way it's written on the page. Then I went and I sat down with Ari, and he and I are both cinephiles. We both, you know, love watching movies. I definitely concede to his superior knowledge of film, but we had a really extensive conversation about the kind of movies that we loved and stuff. And I, I got a sense from him of exactly what what way he wanted to make it and what his visual references were. And, um, you know, just like he was talking to me about how he was going to approach the score and all the different elements and components and how they were going to be married together in the film. So I was intrigued by it. And, you know, I kind of had my take on the character of Christian and I felt like 
on the page, you could look at this guy as being really one-dimensional and, you know, he's kind of just a bit of a dick, really, and is just emotionally unavailable and a little insensitive to his girlfriend who's going through this horrific trauma and grief. But I wanted to try and expand a little bit more with the character and give him a bit more of a dimensionality and make him somebody who also perhaps is just trying to get his own sort of autonomy and is in a stale relationship that he, you know, isn't isn't prepared to stay in anymore. He needs to kind of grow and expand himself and, and, and break out of it. So that was part of the challenge and also part of the joy of being involved in the film for me. In a way, it's difficult because for the first two-thirds of the film, there's not much really for me to do outside of be that insensitive prick boyfriend. And it's only under these horrific constraints in the third act of the film that you know this these realizations come to the sky and i'm kind of playing a lot of it in, in my eyes you know trying to play a lot of this like understanding and this kind of horror at the way things have turned out you're asked i mean you and you and florence both but in some senses you more are asked to do a lot of hard things in terms of nudity and all this kind of stuff mm-hmm. Do you find that that implicit trust with the director, is that really hard to come by? I mean, is that a rare experience with a director like Ari Aster? Or do you find that you can arrive there with, you know, most people you work with? By and large, I can trust people as long as I'm clear that they are committed to their vision. They know what they want to get and they have a plan for how they're going to get it. And Ari takes all those boxes, you know. The really complicated thing that was going on on set was that we were shooting in a valley in incredible heat in the middle of summer. It looks hot. I mean, it, it was just, so yeah, hot, dude. Yeah. In the middle of summer, like direct sunlight all day, um, and you had a Hungarian portion of cast and crew, a Swedish part of that, and an English-speaking part of that. So there were three languages on set, and there was, I think, two people who spoke all three languages. So the conditions were difficult. It was a hard set. It was a hard place to shoot, and everything had to be translated back and forth like Chinese whispers. And when everything is being executed in such a precise way, from the cinematography to the blocking of the actors to... You know, like you've got these huge scenes, of like these dinner scenes and these rituals and all this kind of stuff. And so to coordinate all that was so incredibly tricky. And I think that was tough at times for Ari, you know. And like it meant that sometimes we as a cast could get a little bit frustrated because we were standing around going like, hey, what's going on? When are we going to shoot this? We've been standing here forever, you know what I mean? And And he was trying to... He was trying to get his vision across the line to everybody in all these different languages. Right. So, I mean, it was profoundly difficult in that sense. But I think we pulled it off. I'm like, I do feel like what, what the the product is. It's sound, you know. So you did all that work, and you you know you'd had these conversations before you shot, and you had this sort of intuitive sense while you were in process of what the film was going to be. So you sat down to watch it. The day we're recording, I think you just watched the movie for the first time two days ago. Mm-hmm. What surprised you? I mean, what didn't you expect from the final product? Um, as I said to you, I always knew that there was going to be a comedic tone, that there was going to be a lot of black humor in it. 
What really surprised me was that the final 40 minutes of the film, we, the cast at least, we all stopped laughing and it got serious. And it was like, whoa, this is seriously, seriously heavy. This mm -hmm. is a tough watch. There's not that many films that I have struggled to sit through because I'm so uncomfortable in that way. Like in the realm of the senses, Nagisa Ashima, that's mm -hmm. one, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, Snowtown, that's mm -hmm. a movie that I, I'm so uncomfortable when I'm watching it. Maybe it's because of what happens to my character. Maybe it's the maybe it's the feeling of all the toxic emotions that are going on towards the end of the movie but I like we all were profoundly affected by it and when the credits rolled we sat there in silence for 10 minutes none of us could talk we were just we were breathing and that was it um so I was surprised at just how intense it was another thing that really surprised me was that a lot of the scenes, I, I think there's going to be a director's cut. There's going to be a three-hour, three-hour, oh, wow. fifteen-minute cut of this movie, which will be Ari's Criterion cut. Collection, exactly, kind of thing, with yeah. all the supplements, right? <laughs> but I think you know there were plenty of moments in the film where Florence's character and my character were actually connected, and where you could see a more compassionate side of my character, and. We definitely shot scenes where you can see that this guy he loves her, you know, and like they they there's a reason that they've been in a relationship. You right. know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. Um, and yeah. and it was interesting to see that all that stuff had been taken out. Mm -hmm. I think for the purposes of reinforcing with the audience that this is a broken, dysfunctional relationship that's coming to an end, all that stuff was taken out, you know. Um, but I was surprised to see it gone because some of it I thought was really good. And then there was a great f argument that me and Florence had as well that we shot in the freezing cold one night. It must have been like minus five degrees Celsius and we were in T-shirts. And we had this screaming match with each other, which turned out really well, but also didn't make the cut. I think, I mean, if everything had gone in, the movie would be four hours long. You know, it'd be right. like the Lord of the Rings. You know, <laughs> and I don't know if anyone could do four hours of that. Movie. No, <laughs> I mean, two two twenty is, yeah, is is a lot. Not without the therapist on speed dial. <laughs> so I'm curious. You you mentioned that you you know um, when you're on a set all this technical stuff about camera placement and all that stuff. How did you teach yourself that? Was that something just you, you, you learned through the process of being on sets? or did you? Partly through the process of being on sets, having the good fortune to work with some really incredible directors and, 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 and learning from, from their styles. Um, I've always played around with cameras. I've you know, always shot photography and shot video, which I love. Um, and I've always been interested in filmmaking not just acting. I directed a short last year with Will Poulter playing the lead and it's based on a on a, on a small Japanese folk tale um, as written down by a, an Irishman, Lafcadio Hearn, at the end of the 19th century. But I set it in Ireland during the Great Famine and it's a ghost story. And I've got to say, like, the experience of writing and directing something, even just as a short, but bringing together a crew of people who I've worked with many times as an actor and, you know, shooting this thing, you know, like 235 to 1, black and white, very stylized. It was just amazing to just have other people around helping me to put my vision on, on, on a screen, you know, take it out of my head and put it on the screen. That, that was, like, phenomenal. More than anything, just watching 
the directors I've worked with, talking to them, asking them questions about their choices, um, and watching a lot of films, man. I've always watched a lot of movies. It, it's I just live and breathe film, you know? So you mentioned that you're a, you're a voracious watcher of films, which brings am. us to social media, uh-huh. particularly. It's not a secret Instagram account by any by no. any means, but it's a second Instagram account. That's right. Uh, that's really devoted to to your love of. And this is not like oh, let's watch you know Interstellar and talk about Christopher Nolan. This is like <laughs> not, not, nothing wrong with that movie, but like this is a very like in depth like foreign language older cinema. Yeah. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about the sort of beginning of this uh, this kind of film buff kind of thing that you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I've got this page on Instagram, JR Cinemania. Mm-hmm. Um, I historically have not engaged with social media at all because I think it's pretty toxic and I don't care to let people know what I'm eating for breakfast every morning. You know what right. I mean? Fair. Um, but... You know, I kind of thought to myself, well, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna do it, like I love talking about film, but there's not, especially where I live in Ireland, like in in the place that I live, there's not a lot of people who talk about film the same way I do or who love it as much as I do. So there's only so much going down to the local pub and talking to the farmers who I know <laughs> about, you know, Sam Fuller movies or, you know, whatever. So. Um, I just decided, right, maybe I can use social media to start conversations about films. And I'm not a film critic. These are not technically reviews. You know, I'm not going on there saying, I thought this was shit about this film. It's like, these are films that I love and I'm writing what I love about them and why I love it, you know? And some of them are not the best films ever, but there are elements of them that I think have a lot of value and have a lot of currency in the, in cinema. Um, so I basically just sat down and I just started to write and I, I kind of was thinking I want to try and introduce people who are interested to things that they might not have seen before and, and you know, maybe expand some people's horizons about world cinema and about, you know, classic cinema because I feel like with the way things are now, like with, with streaming services and stuff, everybody's kind of having stuff pumped at them and they're just being told what to watch it's like watch the next big franchise movie watch this this is we're just telling you what to watch and and it's hard for people to find interesting films it's hard for people to find you know art house cinema you know and yeah. stuff like that so I, I just love to write about it and I always mourn the video store because yeah. when I was young my sister and I would just go down and like there's something about picking up the box and reading the back mm-hmm. that's different than Netflix because I go on Netflix now and I just my brain scrambles and I'm like I there's can't. too much choice yeah so what I like about what you're doing is it's curation mm-hmm. essentially mm-hmm. it's like a, it's a movie club and um, and I think that's great and it's and it seems like there is you're, you're having good interaction I mean people are are into it is it all kinds of people who are it is yeah? it's all kinds of people Um you know, some of them are people who are fans of my films. Mm-hmm. Some of them are people who are just fans of cinema. Um, but there's a, a, a broad and eclectic mix. And I've only done it. I've only been doing it for the last couple of months. But um, I find that whatever I put up there, no matter how obscure, somebody comes on and goes, oh, my God, I'm so happy you put this up. I love this movie and people don't talk about it enough. Mm-hmm. And I get such a kick out of that, you know? Yeah. And it also, like, it gives me something to do when I'm not at work. I find it very difficult when I finish a project and I just stop dead. That's it, you know? You go from 100 miles an hour for four months of a shoot to just zero overnight. 
and um, just the readjustment period of like going home and just trying to get into, you know, just regular life, having something like this where I can get up and I can write and I can watch films and I can think about them and I can interact with people about it, it gives me something to do and it helps me to readjust. Do you find your tastes trending any one direction more often than others? Like, I mean, like, is there a filmmaker you keep returning to or a genre? I have been on a crazy, crazy um, Japanese cinema spree for the last three years, and it just it just seems to be unending. And um, I'm totally cool with it. I love it. I am fascinated by the similarities between Irish folk culture and Japanese folk culture. The mythological kind of comparisons between the two of them, I think, are amazing it's and it's not something that people would ever connect you know but um it blows my mind and i find those movies i i really relate to them i really relate to stuff like um ugetsu the mizuguchi film empire of passion nagisa ashima particularly masaki kobayashi films like kwaidan is one of my favorite movies of all time i think it's amazing and um, i think he might might well be my favorite director uh but i constantly go back to to Japanese films and I love the kind of spectrum of genres within their um, history of cinema you know from from stuff that is like you know supernatural or like old samurai movies but also I love things like you know Hiroshi Teshigahara Vengeance is Mine stuff like that Um, so I, I constantly go back to Japanese cinema I also watch I've been watching a lot of Michael Powell lately love Michael Powell I did a little write-up on my page about uh, Peeping Tom. Yeah. It was the first film that I programmed on my movie club, and I was drawing some comparisons between Peeping Tom and uh, Psycho. Mm. What I thought was really interesting, and it's funny because the the way we had the press screening for Midsommar where they just said, look, you guys, anybody who sees the movie, you can write about it straight away. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting because only last week I was talking about Peeping Tom coming out in 1960 and there was a press screening for it and the critics just savaged the movie. And they savaged it, they buried the movie, it was the end of his career in Britain and Hitchcock saw this. He said, right, we're not going to do a press screening for the film, we're just going to open it wide and let people talk about it word of mouth. And it became... You know, the, mm-hmm. the, one of the first event movies, you know, and yeah. it's so huge in popular culture. But Peeping Tom, which I controversially might argue is, I, I prefer Peeping Tom to Psycho. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, that w- that just disappeared. Something I like about what you're doing uh, on your Instagram is that there is a really fraught relationship right now between the film goer and social media and the filmmaker and you see people pushing back against critics and yelling about Rotten Tomatoes or whatever Mm -hmm. and you're channeling you're using the platform for something kind of good and beneficial rather than trying to create controversy or trouble you know which I think you know so it, it's a good example that this stuff can be used for good mm-hmm. <laughs> once in a while. Cool. That's, yeah. Dude, that's so great to hear, <laughs> yeah. honestly. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I definitely encourage people to um, seek that out because it's really fun. And you do live broadcasts, is that right? I once do in a while? live yeah. broadcasts. So yeah. with this movie club that I have, I'm just programming movies every week. Yeah. 
tomorrow I've got to do a live broadcast about Sonatine by Takeshi Kitano, okay. which is dope. I don't know if you've seen that one. But I haven't, no. Oh, it's great, man. Yeah. you got to check it out. Okay. Um, so I just, like, I'll put on a movie every week, and then on a Thursday I'll just, you know, do a live broadcast for 10 or 15 minutes and talk about the film, what I like about it, take some people's questions. I love that. You've got to start programming at, like, at Alamo Draft House. Like, <laughs> you, you, you come see the Jack Rayner series Maybe at uh, someday. You know, the Arclight or something. Yeah. Well, in the meantime, uh, you've got, you're going to be riding the midsummer wave uh, mm-hmm. which is very exciting i think people this is this is going to air the week that the film comes out in the united states i think people are going to be really taken with it and uh, and i think it shows your commitment to the project shines through. So <laughs> congratulations on that. And Thanks, uh, yeah, we can't wait to see what you do next and we'll see you on instagram. Jack, thank you so much. Thank you very yeah. much for having me. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the reviews director of Pitchfork and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Luna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as a specialty record, poster, and craft fairs, and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit Pitchfork Music Festival. Okay, Lynn Shelton, thank you so much for uh, for calling in from production uh, to join us. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. You were giving interviews for your last film and saying that um, you were kind of hinting at what you're working on and saying it was something that would get you back to improv. Uh, And I'm curious if that was kind of the animating idea behind the project, that you wanted to do improv and it kind of grew from there? Or or what started you down this road? Yeah, there were a few seedlings that, uh, you know, I I wanted to put in the ground all at the same time to grow into a, <laughs> a hybrid tree. I don't even know what I'm saying. Um, there are a few points of inspiration. The I'd say the number one was um, wanting to work with Mark mm-hmm. uh, Marin. I'd been wanting to make a movie with him ever since I directed him in his TV show, Marin. I got to direct the first couple episodes of his last season of Marin on IFC. And I had met him a few months before that when he interviewed me for his WTF podcast. And we found we had a lot in common, got along really well and sort of kept in touch uh, after that interview. And then I worked with him a few months later and it was just like, wow, we we really had a really fun time working together. And it, and it just seemed like a good collaboration, a, a specifically a good creative partnership. And then serendipitously, I got hired to direct on this TV show that was going to be a new Netflix show called Glow. And a few months after that, he went out for a part and got the part. And it was like, are you kidding me? (laughs) Out of all the TV shows in the world, we just happened to work on the same one again. I definitely assumed that that happened somehow because you had worked on Marin, that it it came that way. it was so weird. Yeah, it was just crazy. I'll never forget the day that he, you know, he said, yeah, I, I get offered these different you know, opportunities to audition for things. And I'm not really that excited about them, but this one just seemed like it might be a good fit. Could I, could I show you my audition tape that I'm sending in, you know? And then he said it to me, and it was like, oh my God, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> they have to hire you. There's nobody else that could they hire. You That's know, you very have true. You to be cast in this part. But anyway, that was, that was real. We had a great time working on that um, together. And then he asked me to do his special. I directed a special, but right after working together on Marin, we started to, 
bandy about ideas uh, for a movie script. We started to co-write a movie script together. It was very slow going, and we're still almost finished with the first draft <laughs> of this whole other movie. And I got impatient because I, you know, wanted to get on set with him and uh, said so. And he said, well, I know it's hard for me. You know, he's, he's just incredibly busy. He's got like a, a gazillion different lives. You know, you know, he's got his podcast, any one of which would keep somebody really busy. Yeah. But he does his podcast, which is a full-time thing. And he does Glow when he's on Glow. He's in, you know, that's a full-time thing. Um, and then he does all this stand-up and he's like out of town half the time because he's on the road. You know, so he's got a lot going on. And it was just hard to really keep a consistent, write, you know, co-writing schedule where we could actually get together and write. So anyway, he said if you really want to get on set with me more quickly, just write another role for me. I'll give you a couple of weeks and we'll make, you know, this other movie. Yeah. So that's what I did. So I was like <laughs> trying to cast around, you know, about trying to think about what kind of movie I wanted to make with him. And I knew that I wanted to return to improv. So I really wanted to go back to that kind of way of working, which is extremely stressful on set because you're basically writing this the script or a good portion of the script, you know, dialogue anyway, on set. Yeah. Um, and that's terrifying. And if you only have 12 days to shoot it, like we did this in this circumstance, it's really stressful. And so it's like a terror that you miss. Like you uh, you had like you had like 10 years away from that terror from since your sister's sister and you're like, oh man, I, I just want to be scared like that again. Exactly. <laughs> well, there's a certain quality of performance that you could only get in that in that mode. Yeah. You know, it's really difficult to replicate it by writing, a, you know, dialogue that, and then finding people who can really. I mean, it's possible. You know, there are actors who can just take written words and just alchemize them into words that sound like a real person would say them. You know, it just sounds like it's just coming out of their mouths. I mean, it's possible to do, but it's just really hard, and it's it's also just this. There you get these really fun surprises because people genuinely have to be in the moment. You don't know what the other person is going to say. Whereas if it's a written script, you know exactly what the other person is going to say. Whereas when you're improvising, it really is sort of like you're being. You just have found out if you know who you are and what the circumstances are, you're just living the scene, you know, in genuine, in a more genuine, organic way. Anyway, I, I just, I love improvisation. It's so wonderful. And then the last um, element that I really wanted to incorporate was I've been dying to allow myself to go into a new territory genre-wise mm -hmm. where I didn't have to be so stuck on is every single thing that happens in this movie completely believable, you know, every step of the way. So like your sister, sister and Humpty, I think are both good examples of on paper, they seem like things, things that happen in the plot may not seem very believable, but when you watch the movie, it's like every second is sort of like, oh, yeah, I can see how that second's going to lead to the next beat. Yeah, next it's beat. like the weirdest you know? day of these very normal people's lives. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And this is the weirdest day of pretty normal people, but it gets so weird that it's a little <laughs> yeah. off the gr You know, it's like, okay, now we're getting into kind of screwball, you know, comedy territory or comedy caper territory, you know. It's yeah. like a fish called Wanda or like, you know mm – -hmm, mm -hmm. um, Pineapple Express, where people are like in over their heads and crazy stuff happens that just is a little bit beyond, you know, reality. But, but I, yeah, I wanted to give myself permission to do that for once, you know, <laughs> not be so tied to total naturalism. But I wanted the characters to feel um, grounded, even if they're out there and they're kind of fun, you know, wacky characters, they still feel like real people. And they're still fully rounded and they still, um, and you in, invest in them emotionally, you yeah. know. So I wanted all those, you know, those things are, are, I think, are through lines in all of my work, I hope, um, it's certainly a goal. 
And I wanted that to be the case as well. So those were sort of the three things that were the inspiration points. Well, then you give yourself kind of a high stakes caper here where you you set it in the South and you've got you're dealing with like revisionist Civil War history, which is like silly and like makes for kind of a comedic thing. But also you kind of get into the idea of like white supremacists on YouTube, which could go in such a horrible, toxic direction. And I think one of the triumphs of the movie is that it doesn't go that way. It doesn't take it unseriously, the idea of these people kind of having pretty abominable views, but it it works it in well. So what made you kind of say, all right, it's worth it for us to try to go this way and and thread that needle and have the movie come out with the, with the right tone? Well, I wanted to make a movie that another quality I wanted the film to have was that I wanted it to feel relevant to Mm -hmm. our time (laughs) in history. And I am obsessed with the fact that this whole alternative fact you know, saying, I mean, we've always had conspiracy theories. In fact, the whole country, you could, you could argue, is really built on conspiracy theory, you know, um, to sort of a foundation of it, um, like, honestly. Like, but like Boston Tea Party back then? Or we, we like... I mean, it's fascinating. If you look into it, there, was, there were conspiracy theories going around that the king was going to, of King of England, was actually going to full-on enslave the colonists. I mean, there's this whole, it, it's really that, interesting, that, that but there sense. really are... Yeah, and so it fomented revolution. Like it really got people motivated to to revolution because yeah. they literally were convinced that you know all these terrible dark things were going to happen that probably weren't going to be as extreme as as the conspiracy theories you know laid out. But yeah, it's really fascinating. There's there's a lot of um, rich rich history of conspiracy theories <laughs> that went really you know went crazy over the years, and we're just having a, a, a you know, a particularly peak moment since we have conspiracy theorist in chief at the moment. And, you know, and he's just making shit up right and left, you know. And so, you know, (laughs) it's it's pretty uh, astounding and pretty disturbing. And so I really wanted to make a movie that referred to that. But I also didn't want to make a movie like life is hard enough as it is. We'd just be sort of, you know, sobbing constantly if we really let in what was going on in the world right now. And I didn't want to make a movie that that made people feel like slitting their wrists when they left the theater. Yeah. You know, it was interesting trying to strike the right balance um, yeah. and, and skirt uh, and refer to, you know, and, and some, you know, some of the characters that you actually are, are our heroes. You find out have some pretty questionable views on mm-hmm. um, <laughs> the way the world works <laughs> and, and trying to also point to this as being a, an overall kind of human folly that we are all capable of becoming suckers. Um, you were talking earlier about the process that goes into uh, the improv in your films and how there's scripts, but it's not pure improv. I think about when Hump Day came out, and this is around the same time that the Duplass Brothers films were kind of leaning heavily on improv as well, and there was so much press about it, and I feel like a lot of misunderstanding about the idea that like we made up a whole movie and, and everyone's seen really bad versions of it. Um, right. Now that you're coming back to it after, like you were saying, a break, do you feel like people get it more, like the, the style of movie that you're making, that it gets embraced more by either financiers or, or actors, like th- that it's kind of reached a level where people get it? I don't know if people get it in general or not. I think they probably do. I think there's enough examples out there that people are a little less um, anxious about yeah. about it. But, you know, I mean, I know <laughs> because I have personally made a couple of films that, you know, may not have been big box office hits, but they certainly are considered by the people who did get a chance to know they existed and see them <laughs> <laughs> to be successful. <laughs> 
Um, you know, they made, they got into prominent film festivals and they won awards and they, you know, and they kind of um, made the rounds among industry professionals, certainly in cinephiles. There's a certain, a certain audience for them, but there is uh, a certain amount of love and appreciation for the way those films turned out and the performances that came out of them. And, and so that was really helpful. To have my own personal track mm-hmm. record with working in this way was definitely um, a, real, a real benefit in trying to go out and find some financing for it. Um, but I do think there is definitely a, m- more confidence in general um, that you can make a, a movie that doesn't just feel like I mean, some t- I think in the old days, you're right. I think that hearing improv might have just, and the word mumblecore yeah, was not I wanted to ask you about that. Confidence-inspiring. It sounds like you're just going to be kind of sitting there <laughs> watching people mumble for, and maybe nothing will really happen. It'll be sort of, you know, loosey-goosey, f- and there won't be a plot yeah. at all. You know, like, that's kind of the impression that you might get if you haven't actually seen um, Hump Day or Your Sister, Sister, or or um, Puffy Chair, or, you know, some of these movies that are actually really tightly constructed and move along, you know, with a real clip, and you'd never necessarily guess. I mean, lots of people have told me that they see this movie and they would have never guessed that it was Mm -hmm. improvised. Um, They just would have thought that it was a really well-written script and great actors who know how to, you know, make those lines work. But, you know, they came up with all those lines. So it's, it's... I mean, they're all every single one of those cast members is just a genius in that in that realm. So I'm really grateful to them because I never could have done it without them. That's for I was sure. realizing watching this movie that I hadn't heard the term mumblecore in a while, and I wondered if you had a moment where like you felt a, a weight lift that you didn't know about. It's like, oh, no one's called my work mumblecore in years. Like that term died out kind of blessedly. Oh, yeah. No, it's definitely a relief. Yeah, I mean, I'll still see it brought up, you know, and it's sort of like, oh, God, really? <laughs> but usually it's it's in sort of in in relation to the yeah, past. Yeah, yeah. It's like this is some who used to be thought of as this, you know, but that's, she's long past that, you know, I'm like, okay, thank you. <laughs> but it's not, and it's not even that, I mean, at the time, it's funny because the, at the time, the people who were labeled mumblecore were making really tiny micro-budget movies that probably never would have gotten any attention at all individually. Mm-hmm. But because we were recognized, somebody sort of grouped us all together in a kind of a movement, you know, or a wave of a particular, you know, kind of filmmaker and it's funny that because we're all making movies, actually, not all of them were improvised. I mean, Barry Jenkins' first movie was was mm-hmm, clumped in mm-hmm. at a certain point. His was completely scripted. But, you know, we did have a certain – all of us were not waiting around for permission to make movies. I would say that that's the most important um, element. And we all, we're all making films that – that felt pretty naturalistic, whether or not they were improvised or shot on film or video or whatever it was they, they that they didn't have in common. I think all of us were were really um, determined to just make films on our yeah. own terms, you know, and, and that was a, a pretty cool thing, actually. It's just that after a certain point, it's like you get ghettoized, you know, you get sort of like pigeonholed into this one kind of filmmaker and you're like, OK, I'm, I'm ready to really have that yeah. dropped, please. Thank you. <laughs> You know, you don't want to be labeled. And in do you that think way. TV kind of helped you shake that off a little bit too? That like you get to go onto TV shows and make some things as different as Glow and Mad Men and New Girl. Like you can kind of show within the context of a TV show, like, oh yeah, I, I can do more than improv or quote unquote mumblecore. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, making, and I made um, a few movies that were not, you know, outside in laggies, and yeah. laggies and, um, and, and Touchy Veely, my film four laggies. Those were all, I mean, there was a little bit of improvisation in Touchy Veely, but the vast majority of it was probably 80% scripted. Um, and those two later films were definitely, you know, 98% mm-hmm. scripted. I mean, they really were, were really scripted. So 
Um, but yeah, no, the television uh, definitely, I mean, it's interesting because it's different. You know, you're, you're really channeling somebody else's vision. I'm doing the same job uh, when I'm directing television as I am when I'm directing one of my own movies. But, but you're ultimately answering to somebody else. You're trying to fulfill somebody mm-hmm. else's vision because the writer, the showrunner are the ones who are the gatekeepers. You know, they're, they're, they have the final say creatively, which I love. I love being a part of a crew um, of folks who are really just trying to fulfill somebody else's vision. It's kind of a relief not to be the creative visionary all the time. <laughs> I thought it was interesting. You were talking to Variety, I think, at South by Southwest and talked about having a conversation with Marvel that, you know, ultimately you're not making a Marvel movie now, but that working in TV had made you more open to the idea of making a movie that's not 100% yours. Do you still feel that way? What, a couple months later after you said that? Like, are you feeling less like your body of work in film is always going to be exactly your movies? I don't know. You know, it's interesting. I mean, because I'm ha- I have that. I feel like I have that opportunity right now in to a make way your own movie. Oh, oh, Fires, I see. Yeah, um, because yeah. you know, because Little Fires Everywhere is a, is a little bit in the order of making a Marvel movie in my mind's eye. It's <laughs> it's just that I mean, I'm not again because it is television. I'm I'm obviously not the creative visionary, but I feel like making a studio film, especially in a franchise like in the in the Marvel universe, you know in a certain way, there would be a little bit of overlap with what it's like to be a director in television as an EP producing director, Mm -hmm. you know, because I've just, you know, I'm directing the pilot and I'm directing um, three more of the episodes. So I'm directing half of the episodes of this limited series. And then I'm also around to support and help with the other directors Mm. that are coming in to direct the other four episodes. So, you know, I definitely have an influence creatively, but it's not my baby, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? So I am, again, fulfilling, I'm here to fulfill the vision of Liz Tiglar, who is the the showrunner, and then the producers, you know, I'm Carrie Washington and Reese Witherspoon, and they're producing partners, you know? So I'm, I'm here as a, um, yeah, as a conduit kind of for their vision ultimately, you know? And then I bring my own creative filmmaking tools to the, to the, um, occasion, but I'm not, I'm not the creative visionary. Now, if I was making a Marvel movie, it's a movie. So I would definitely have a slightly different role in that I would be more of the creative visionary, but it still would have to be within the realm of that universe. And so many things that, you know, would have to be referring to other films that they make and other, the character, the through line of the Mm -hmm. characters. And, and there are just certain, there'd be, it would just be a lot more collaborative an experience than me <laughs> willing a small film into existence, yeah. you know, from the own, my own strange, you know, seeds and asking Mike O'Brien, you know, to co-write it with me and let's make something really silly and fun. And it would just be a very different kind of experience, I think. I mean, you know? thinking about when you like, when you first started an episode of Mad Men and I think 2010, like the amount of opportunities like this, like something little, like Little Fires Everywhere wouldn't have been happening back then. Like there's so many different opportunities in right. TV now. So it's like, it feels like for yeah. watching from the outside, like you kind of watch television grow and say like, why not direct glow? Like you're, you know, you're on the morning show. Like there's so much out there to work on. Oh, I mean the creative, it's where the creative and financial capital is right now. You know, I mean, it's, it's really, I'm not that movies aren't still being made, but there's so much more attention and credibility now that that uh, the television gets, and deservedly so. I mean, it really is the new cinema in a way. It's like a whole new wave of cinema is happening on on television. It's it's. I mean, it, I mean, just look at Big Little mm-hmm. Lies. That lit the roster of movie stars. You know, and I mean the same with this. That's you know, <laughs> it's 
It's not (laughs) the talent, the star quality of the folks that are now doing television. It's just, there's absolutely zero stigma. In fact, quite the opposite, you know, prestige television has become the new sort of, you know, cinema. I mean, it really, it's, it's kind of astonishing. And the same with writers. I mean, the quality of the writing, the quality of the scripts, the quality of the cinematographers, the directors, everybody is turning their attention to television and, and then there's more, it just feels like there's more of a system for actually getting the word out, you know, and getting attention, getting eyeballs on your work. You know, it's just, it's, it's really, it's all right there. So it feels like the place to definitely play. And as the industry shifted, so did my kind of simultaneously my attitude I didn't even really line this up before, (laughs) but it makes perfect sense that when I first started getting television work, I had Mad Men, but then I really was in this sort of sitcom land, Mm -hmm, single camera mm -hmm. sitcoms like New Girl and Mindy Project and Fresh Off the Boat and Ben and Kate, this short-lived little little, um, great, actually, uh, TV series that went away in the blip of an eye. But, you know, um, but those kinds of, um, I've worked on The Good Place, you know, um, those sorts of shows that were really handy for me because I had a kid. I live in Seattle. I would come down to LA for two weeks for, you know, four or five days of prep, five days of shooting, and I'd zip back <laughs> up to Seattle and I'd be able to not be a complete absentee mother, you know. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then I'd be able to sock away some money so that when I wanted to make a movie, I could have total creative control and just make yeah. a movie. So it was sort of like this way of just keeping the bills paid, but I would keep plotting my next movie. And now it really is like I'm totally open to doing television. I'm totally open to doing movies. I'm really – it's really half and half. I have no – I no longer have that sense of, oh, I'm only, I am a filmmaker only, and I only work in this yeah. kind of film at all, you know. I mean, there's so many advantages, too. In, in limited series, is like you, you get to do a long feature. You know, you're basically like, we talk about the first three episodes of this show are going to be the first act of our feature film. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's like, it's, you know, it really is, you get to play things out longer and have more just more acts, you know, and more than just your 90 minutes or two two hours, you know. So it's it's you can get richer and deeper and bigger casts and you're not going to lose some of the threads, you know, it's, it's kind of a great, um, yeah, it's a great form, you know, structurally for narrative work. You mentioned that you and Mark are still working on the script together. Would that maybe be the, I know you're in the middle of something else. So it's hard to ask about what's next, but do you think another movie would be on the horizon for you or is that all too far in the distance? I mean, I definitely have to make this movie. We've been working on it far too long, and, <laughs> and I love it too much for it to not happen. So, yeah, no, I definitely will make this movie. I don't know when. I embarked on this limited series back in April, and we finished shooting sometime in the fall, but then the post will go on for a while. And so it's really hard for me to see. Yeah, sure. You know, I'm so, it's so intense and it's so, you know, like it's really just got me. I feel so sort of myopic right now, but, um, I'm, I'm pretty open. I'm pretty wide open at this point to what the universe is going to, you know, direct me towards when I, when I come out of this, um, (laughs) the the little fires uh, cave. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the the the, womb <laughs> of this, the we're making an amazing show here. It's it really is a stunning show. Such an incredible cast and just such so much talent just oozing from the pores of this thing. I'm just I can't believe I'm here <laughs> pinching myself. Every day. Uh, well, that's really exciting for something to look forward to. And if we have to wait a little bit longer for your next movie, 
Yeah, yeah, probably, but hopefully yeah. not too long because I, I have a pathology, <laughs> um, Katie. I have a, a little bit of a sickness. <laughs> I just have to keep making them. <laughs> um, all right, well, that seems like a good way to end it. Um, Lynn Shelton, please get back to work. Don't work too hard, but um, we're really excited to see the show. And um, thank you so much for calling. And everyone should go see Sort of Trust. Thank you. Thanks for saying that. Yes, they should. They absolutely should. That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. You can keep finding us on VanityFair.com and on Twitter at Little Gold Men. And we'll be back next week. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowicz, um, who should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. we support that. Very <laughs> <laughs> <Right> nice. <laughs> Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mel. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> <laughs>